All righty, let's get started. I welcome you back to your seats. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, where we pick up where we left off, verse 18. I'm in the center of the chapter as we make our way through the Mediterranean, seeing the amazing story of how Christianity and the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. So put your finger there. I'll ask God for his blessing, and then we'll begin. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to just pause a moment to quiet our hearts before you. We recognize and acknowledge that you are here by the powerful Holy Spirit whom you sent to indwell our hearts for moments like these where we need help, uh, understanding and discerning spiritual truths. So we ask, Lord, for your blessing, for your help, that you might speak to each one of our hearts. You brought us here together. You predestined this moment to happen for a good reason, so help us to catch what it is you have for us, and put it into practice so we can be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's that time of year. It's the time to make New Year resolutions. And according to one study, 45% of Americans make them and have made one this very year. Why don't you, if you don't mind, raise your hand if you have made some sort of resolution this year. Raise it nice and high, about half, same as first service. Um, Let me have you guess at what number one, according to this study, number one resolution was what? How did you all know that? (laughs) You too? (laughs) All right, number two is getting organized. All right, well, there's always next year. Number three, to spend less and save more. You know what? Financial peace is coming. Number four, to enjoy life to the fullest. Well, I have some suggestions where you can find out how to do that in the Bible. All right, five, staying fit and healthy. It's never ending. Number six, learn something exciting. Okay. (laughs) Number seven, quit smoking. Number eight, to help others in their dreams. Everybody, (laughs) oh. No, get ready. Number nine, to fall in love. Oh. Oh, wow. There are a couple boos there. All right. Moving on to number 10. And finally, to spend more time with family. Of course, yeah. Let me read from the article just a little quote here. Now, studies show that people who resolve to change behaviors do much better than non-resolvers who have the same habits that need to be changed. Statistics show that At the end of January, some 64% of resolvers are still hanging in there. Six months later, that number drops to 44%. That's not that bad still. Making resolutions, finally, they say, is the first step, but experts say you need a plan and a healthy dose of perseverance if you want to succeed. Well, that goes without saying. And Christians often make uh, New Year's resolutions of a spiritual 
nature. They use this time of year to kind of get motivated to set their sights on perhaps improving their Bible reading, maybe come up with a Bible reading plan or a consistent prayer time or targeted character qualities. You know, you notice if you walk with the Lord, the Lord points stuff out, like you have a problem with being impatient or a problem not being very loving, or a problem with your temper. And so those things are targeted out, prayed about, and uh, through spiritual disciplines, those areas are addressed, and you learn and grow. Now, interestingly, uh, in this morning's text, guess what, verse 18, we read of the Apostle Paul making a resolution of his own. He makes a vow, a spiritual Vow. So we're going to take a look at that. He's going to vow to dedicate himself more fully to the Lord and to his work. We are, for context's sake, uh, in the winding up period of the second missionary journey. Paul uh, takes three missionary journeys, teams going out throughout the Mediterranean world, recorded here in the book of Acts, and we are at the end of number two here in chapter 18. So we pick up the story. We're going to take a look at this vow and all the surrounding uh, story that goes with it. We join the team here in Corinth, Greece, where we left them last toward the end of their two to three year mission trip. Okay, verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. (laughs) Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria. That's where the home church is, right? accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, new friends. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he, he declined But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. All right, so we'll pause there, and we're not going to get very much further. There's a lot packed in here, uh, as we're going to find, and then we're going to take communion together. But as a visual learner to hopefully other visual learners, the map of Second Missionary Journey. Now... Where are we? Well, we've already been from Antioch through modern-day Turkey. We crossed over into Europe, and which is modern-day Greece, all of this. We've been to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Berea, to Athens, and then over to Corinth, where Paul has just spent a year and a half of ministry. Uh, the second longest duration of any missionary trip. The next one, uh, the first one, I should say, is Ephesus, where he will spend three years uh, discipling uh, the Christians there. And so this passage that I just read and a few more verses is going to take us from (coughs) Corinth to Centuria here, where he ends his vow. Then he's going to send, he wants to go home now, but they're going to stop over in Ephesus for a day or two, and then he's going to go home and back to the church. And that is uh, 2,690 miles. Uh, 1490 of that 
in sea miles, the rest in land miles. And so about two or three years. So you're, you're pretty much by the end of this sermon, we are done with the second missionary journey and we will have started without a lot of fanfare. Boom, he's already, he's back here and he's gonna start again. And he's gonna go in this general direction even though this is not the map. That this is the second missionary journey. Now that you've got that in place, it's time to leave Corinth. We can leave that up there if you want. Sometimes that's helpful. Now, what does your text say? It says, and then Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Well, the context of that is that there was just this lawsuit in Corinth brought against Paul and the gospel. And miraculously, it got thrown out of court. After that time, Paul decided, well, I'm going to take advantage of the liberty now to be in Corinth. So he didn't leave right after that lawsuit. He, according to your text, spent a little bit more time in Corinth. It must have been hard for him to leave. He went to the port there. You saw the port. In fact, there is a port. I'll show you. There's a picture of the modern day port of Centuria there. And that's where the Apostle Paul uh, shaved his head, in fact, you, uh, and ended a, a vow, and we're going to talk about that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, <laughs> as usual. And, and, and so let me show you. If you go to Centuria today, uh, you can get your hair cut off. <laughs> All right, so that's what you do when you go there, because Paul sat somewhere around there and got his hair uh, shaved, and, and uh, I don't know whether this young man uh, made a vow or not, but in Paul's case, the shaving of his head was to end a vow, which we're going to talk about. But anyway, you could put the map back on because that'll be way too distracting <laughs> to leave the guy with the haircut. You know, hair is just overrated anyway, you know? <laughs> You know what I say, and it usually gets a laugh every time. God made uh, some heads perfect, and the rest he covered up with hair. <laughs> uh, that poor young man, all that hair. Just terrible. <laughs> well, he had to leave after 18 months. Can you imagine? I mean, he told the Corinthians, five years from now, he will write First Corinthians. All right? And he told them, Man, you guys have a lot of teachers now, but you only have one dad. You only have one father, and that would be me. I led you to the Lord. I became your father through the gospel, he said. And, and to see all those lives transformed and changed. He stayed 18 months. He said, I think he just really didn't want to pull himself away from that place. Those were his babies. And and. Oh, what amazing stories there. That was the most wicked city in the Mediterranean. Remember last week we called it the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean, right? And sexual immorality and uh, drunkenness and all kinds of, you know, the King James calls it debauchery. Now, you know, I don't know what debauchery is, but it sounds really bad. <laughs> I do know what it means, by the way, but that's it. It's an old school word, that is. So no one would have ever guessed that out of all the places in the Mediterranean where the gospel would explode, and, and what a significant church. 
So I don't want to leave Corinth right away. I want to just stay right here, give a little shout out to the significance of 18 months in Corinth because 29 chapters of the New Testament, God's word, 29 chapters, more ink given to what happened at Corinth than the entire book of Acts. God's word to us as it related to the highs and the lows of the people who lived in Corinth. Wow, and what a church, man. First Corinthians chapter one says, when he writes them, he says, man, I always have fond memories of you guys. You guys didn't lack one spiritual gift. They were spirit-filled man alive. Uh, they lacked no spiritual gift. In fact, they went overboard on a couple of them. Right? Paul had to write him an entire chapter about the abuse of the gift of tongues. He's saying, you guys, quit it. Slow down. Do this biblically. Everybody's standing up, praying in tongues out loud. He said, I would rather come in your church and hear five intelligible words than all of that. He said, if somebody comes in from outside to your church and you're all doing that, they're going to think you're crazy. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But they were also a troubled church. They had a lot of baggage from their former lives. You know the list, the list, where Paul will write five years later, like I said. They're wavering a little bit. They're having trouble. They live on the strip, okay? It's hard to live your Christian life in Corinth. So he writes back to them and he says, hey, don't be deceived. Those kinds of lifestyles, those are lifestyles of people who will not be going to heaven. And then he makes a long list. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, sexually immoral people, adulterers, idolaters, slanderous kind of thugs, greedy extortioners, uh, drunks and thieves. And then he says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified by the Spirit of God. What a congregation. I mean, former, I mean, you could preach to somebody words, but when your life is transformed and you used to be a temple shrine prostitute and now you're reading the scrolls and living a godly self-controlled life of purity, that's why Paul says to the Corinthians, you are living epistles you are like a walking Bible that some people will look at and they will, see, they will read. It's like reading the Bible, looking at the transformation of your life. He wrote that to the Corinthians. So you don't need to preach anything. Just be morally transformed. What's the answer to that? The answer to that is there's a God in heaven. When Mary Magdalene leaves her life of sin, the Bible says she had seven demons within her. Yikes. Not a very nice lady, right? And she's the first witness of the resurrection. She's schooling Peter, James, and John, who are out hiding underneath the covers. <laughs> what do you say to that? What do you say to a changed life? 
What do you say about a guy who, who hated Christianity, wanted nothing to do with God, walks into a bar at 19 years old and walks out after having some sort of spiritual encounter with God and comes out talking about Jesus and praying the sinner's prayer, having never been to church in his life? What do you say about that guy? <laughs> what do you say about him? Oh, there's, only, oh, there's only one thing you could say. It's, you've had an encounter. And, and from my lips, I could say, tell you who it was. It was Jesus. And so Paul stayed in Corinth a little bit longer. And then it says he went to the port. But before he got on the boat to leave uh, Europe for the mainland again, right? He cuts off his hair because he had taken a vow. Now, scholars say, evidently, Paul is with his Jewish roots, gone back to take something called a Nazarite vow. If you're interested in that, it's in Numbers chapter 6. It was a common thing that Jews did. It was voluntary, number one. You didn't have to do it. It was something that when you were moved in your heart out of gratitude or desire to get closer to God, we, we know what that means, uh, that you would dedicate some period of time. So s- scholars and commentators say, probably after the lawsuit, and it went so well, and God kept his promise to the apostle, that he just said, you know what, I'm gonna use the next couple months to just take a vow to you. Now, Nazarite vow, you could eat, but you did ramp up your prayer time, and you were very sensitive about anything sinful uh, to defile you. So it would be kind of like us saying, look, no television, no secular music for like a month. Instead of that uh, stuff I put in my ears, I'm going to plug in Bible reading and uh, teaching tapes and worship music. Uh, That's kind of the heart of the Nazarite vow. Now, why did they not cut their hair? Well, it was symbolic of unbroken fellowship with God. And so that's all it was, is a symbol. And when you were done with your vow, I'm done with my vow. And then you would take that hair, according to Numbers chapter 6, and you take that and you take it to the temple, give it to the priest, and it would stand for the duration. I give you that time to the Lord, and you would bring an offering. So there was gratitude, there was sacrifice, there was a desire to get closer to God and be more dedicated to his work and to thank him. Now, obviously, Paul just saw miraculous things. And it just moved him as he's leaving Corinth to leave with a full, worshipful heart. I have no regrets. Lord, you kept your promise to me. When I was ready to leave Corinth, because here it comes, the beating coming down the road for me, like usual. And the Lord appeared to him in a dream, remember? And he said, Paul, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. I'm with you. Open your mouth. Keep speaking. No attack here is going to prosper against you. And he's like, as he's at the port there, going home, he's looking. He says, thank you. Thank you for what you did for me. I didn't deserve, I don't deserve to be the apostle Paul, he's saying. You you treat everybody like this? This is incredible. Look what you've done in my heart, through my life. I just want to scoot in closer. I want to be more holy. I want to say thank you. It's kind of nice. Instead of just a day in and day out, you know, it's God's job to forgive me. He's <laughs> just doing his job to bless me. Paul says, oh, no, 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 God, let me 
give something back to you. And he goes to his Jewish roots. He takes a vow. It's very beautiful. Very beautiful indeed. And so he set sail. I do like one, one commentator brings it home to us. He said, while all believers are expected to live fully devoted lives as living sacrifices offered to God, there are seasons in our lives where extra attention is given to spiritual concerns to come closer to the Lord. Fastings and prayers, giving and special service and ministry, as we express through such times thankfulness for his mercies and a continued desire to, do, to be more faithful and useful to the master. You can tell I'm moved. I'm moved because I feel, I feel very indebted to God. I, 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 I'm the one who gets to look out and see all of this. When I remember uh, having a bone marrow transplant, starting with no money and no job and 20 people and 40 Costco chairs. I, I know that. And I get to see all the employees and, and the income and revenue of the church and, and the blessing. And I stop and say, God, what can I give back to you? How can I just express my thanksgiving for your faithfulness in my life. And I, I learned from the Apostle Paul, there are ways to do that. There are ways to do that. Uh, so he's going to pick up now. Uh, Paul shares the gospel in the uh, local synagogue once they get to Ephesus. That's what he always does. And with a great initial response, your text says, hey, we want to hear more about this Jesus. He says, you know what? I'm going to leave you Priscilla and Aquila, but I've made a vow to God. I've got to get that offering to Jerusalem. Scholars say it probably Passover time and the seas and the weather and all of that. He wants to be with his offering at Passover in Jerusalem, even when the Ephesians are saying, we want the gospel, he's saying you've got two spirit-filled ministers here in Aquila and Priscilla. They will lead you. And if it's God's will, I'll come back. And by the way, it was God's will because he does come back and he will spend uh, three years with them. Now, let's not leave Ephesus without... Uh, noticing this key one verse that can change your life if you apply it with faith. Just one little verse right here. It's a life changer. So simple. When I first say it, you're going to go, oh, I was expecting something bigger than that. Well, here's what he says. I'll be back if God wants me to. Key, the key to successful Christian living. Living your life knowing that you don't own yourself, that you belong to God. You didn't make yourself. You don't sustain your life. God brought you here. God sustains your life. And it's for God that you live and move and have your being. Paul just doesn't say tack on things at the end like God willing. You know, he lives a life that says everything is subordinate to God's good pleasure. And that's what makes the difference. Doing God's will, not my own. Not like getting in my head what I want and then asking God to bless 
what I want to do, my dream, my agenda, my life. It's subtle. <laughs> You're going to be careful about that. What does God want? Is this what I want? Or is it what God wants for me? A prayer of mine is, God, what is your dream for me? Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. My prayer is, Lord, what is your desire on your heart for the life that you created? I didn't create myself. I have the foggiest idea what I should be doing, except you tell me. How would I know why I'm here unless the creator of my life tells me exactly what he had in mind? Paul gets it. He writes to the Corinthians, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. He says, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. The context of that, they were having to struggle with sexual immorality. Look where they came from. Look where they live. So here's Paul's reasoning. He says, you don't own your body. It's not your body to mess around with. You belong to Christ. Should you join Christ to somebody in an immoral way? He says, God forbid. I'm just going back to chapter 6. That's what he says. You're not your own. Therefore, glorify God with the life that he gave you. I love Acts 27. He's on the boat, right? There's a storm. The ship is going down. Everybody's freaked out. And Paul brings an encouraging word. But listen to this. Here it is again. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. He says to the crew, hey, everybody, relax. We're, we're going to make it through. For last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. The God to whom I belong. So rather than a restrictive sense of thinking, hey, I always got to be thinking, what does God want? What does God want? What does God want? Never what I want, right? That's not how I think. I don't think that's biblical. I think it's freeing to know that I have a purpose and when I reach God's potential and purpose for my life, my heart will be satisfied because that was the, the intention of creating me in the first place. Just a wonderful freeing thing, not restrictive, but liberating and protective. And so Paul leaves Ephesus. So let's finish up. We only got four more verses, but there's a lot in there. But as he left Ephesus now, he promised, I will come back. Verse 21, just repeating, I'll come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up. Whenever you go up in the Bible, it's to Jerusalem, and greeted the church. And then he went down, even if you're going north as he is here, it's Jerusalem is on a hill. You're leaving down. You're going down to Antioch his home sending church. So he's going to stop and tie things up, uh, together there with his uh, vow. Verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, 
strengthening all the disciples. So that's as far as we're going to get. But I want to talk about this as loaded with something very important. So if you're taking notes, Paul has left Corinth, right? That's the first idea, the heart full of worship, no regrets with this vow there. And then now, number two, Paul leaves Antioch with a heart to strengthen God's people. So here's the third missionary journey. All right, it looks a lot like the second, but it is different. (laughs) All right, he's home, but not for very long. He has to, he spent some time there. And then he's going back. Now it says Galatia and Phrygia. Phrygia, right here, where the church, of course, the Galatians are there. So he's going to spend some time there. He is going to go to Ephesus soon. We'll get there next time. And he's going to spend three years there. And the next couple chapters are stories about what happens in Ephesus. It's really some dramatic and the kind of funny stuff happens there. I'm looking forward to that. But then he wants to go back to Corinth. So he's going to go to Corinth, follow the blue. And he goes back up and he visits Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And he goes back to Corinth. Now at Corinth, he's going to want to come home. But he finds out that there's a plot to kill him. Surprise. (laughs) And so he's going to go back the other way. So follow the red. This is the last of the third missionary journey. He'll come back to Ephesus. He'll just have a little prayer meeting on the beach there at Miletus. And then he'll go back to where he's going to get finally arrested and then sent off to Rome. That will be the third missionary journey. And so it's already started here in your text. He's already left The home church again, third time now, and he's all the way up here, and that's as far as our text takes us today. So that's where he's at. Now, what I want you to see is Paul's intention is different this time, isn't it? What's he going to do? Not so much preaching the gospel for the first time, though he will. He's going to go from place to place strengthening the disciples, Now, God has labeled us different things. He calls us the saved. He calls us brothers and sisters. He calls us Christians. And he calls us disciples. Every born-again person from God's point of view is a disciple. In the Greek, mathetes, mathetes. And it means a learner. Very insightful. From God's point of view, if you belong to him and you're filled with his spirit, you are constantly learning and changing and growing in a focused, intentional way. That's who you are. Sometimes people want to get a spiritual checkup. They want to know how they're doing in the Lord. That's one way. Check your life out by how God labels you. He labels you a disciple where we get the word discipline. Amen? Oh, I thought I would get a response like that with a word like discipline. A learner. Somebody who's not the same as they were yesterday. Whose love is stronger in 2014 than 2013. Who's learned from taking the stupid satanic bait and biting in and feeling the pain and the emptiness and the death They've learned. 
They don't take the same bait anymore. It's not that we ever become sinless, but you're learning because you're a disciplined learner. You're a disciple. So uh, the, the church has just had an anniversary. We're 11 years old now, this weekend, and I always remember that because uh, it's on our anniversary weekend as well. And so we're 28 years along in our marriage, and the church is 11 years along. And we went out to eat in San Francisco, and uh, miraculously, I ran into somebody who I have not seen in 18 years face-to-face like that. He was a disciple, or so he said. I never saw a lot of Christian fruit, we call it, in his life, but I was always with him, always with the Bible, always meeting with coffee. He'd come over, always struggling, always reason why he couldn't go to church, he couldn't read his Bible, always excuses about everything, why he had to do this sin and that sin, and you don't understand. It was a long walk with him. 18 years later, we haven't talked, or I haven't seen him. Uh, hey, and he goes, I was just thinking about you. I'm like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit, right? Of course, getting him ready for that moment. And we were just talking for about a minute. We were kind of in a crowd. And I said, are you walking with Jesus? Same sentences, same exact sentences with the same tone of voice. Right, right, do you know what I'm saying, right? I didn't mean to say a word, you know what he was saying, right? You know why? Sadly, he's not a disciple. He talks about being a disciple. There's evidence. Moral transformation. The Bible says if the Spirit of God is in you, you're growing. You're growing. You don't become perfect. And yeah, there are some sins, I think, that are a lifetime challenge for certain people. They're called besetting sins. You're just always going to deal with that for some reason. But you're growing. You're learning. You've got some evidence to point to. I'm not like that. I'm not like I used to be. I'm on this journey. I haven't arrived, but I'm straining forward. I hope that you can look back and see that. And so I want you to see a paraphrase about discipleship because this is the text that says Paul's now going to spend three years or more, perhaps five years, of his life discipling the Christians who are already up and running. Well, what is, what is that? That's kind of what the job of the pastor is, to disciple Christians. All right, so I love this verse. Christ gave some as pastors, and you might be asking, why do we have pastors? The Lord says, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I gave some as pastors, maybe the Lord would say. Christ gave some as pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, for ministry, for living your Christian life, so that the people of God may be built up until we all, reach the same place of Christian maturity and complete knowledge of who Jesus is, that we become everything God wants us to be. Now, this is so important. Underline this in your version. Then we will no longer be like spiritual infants or babies tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every new idea, wind of doctrine, especially by smooth talkers and their deceitful scheming. Now, Uh, It's very much what 
this verse is about. But what I want you to see is the evidence and purpose of discipling, because that's what our lives are about. That's why I'm standing here doing this. So that you won't be a spiritual baby tossed back and forth by waves blown here by every new idea. That's God's perspective on why I do what I do primarily. Primarily is to teach the word of God and through the word of God, it nourishes you and trains you in right relationship with God. So for what? Right there in your text, it says so that you will be stable and that when you get trendy, new ideas, new books, new theologies, new philosophies, you'll be able to stand and be stable, not to be impacted. That's the point. That's why we do this, to grow, to learn, and in the end, so that when the new thought comes to you, and they're always out there, you'll be able to to be mature enough to discern that's not right. That's the point of discipleship, to keep you safe. That's it. The shepherd keeps you safe by feeding you the word of God, watching over the flock of God, as the Bible says. I like the hymn, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is calling. He is calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. May we hear him through his revelation to us, the word of God, pouring over the scriptures, reflecting upon him. He speaks to us as we repent, as we obey, as we trust. We're worshiping him. We see him on his throne. We seek only to hear his voice and to obey him, for that's where there's safety and blessing. Now, Father, we commit ourselves to your care. Oh, Lord, we do pray that in these end times you would grow up your learners. Help them, Father, to be spiritually discerning and mature. Help the pastors, Lord, who know and love you to rise up and stand up and be courageous to protect the flock of God for which you shed your blood. And that, as Paul said, that we would watch our doctrine and lives closely so that we would save our lives and not only our lives, but the hearers, those who hear us as well. We thank you for this good exhortation from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your gracious response to communion. Next week, we look forward to that. Don't forget about prayer at the cross. See you Wednesday night. God bless you.